guys can go ahead and grab a seat. My name is Byron. I get the great privilege to be able to serve as the lead pastor. Thank you for joining us in person. And everybody who's watching online, go ahead, click share, because this is a message that people need to hear. How many of you guys had a great week this week? Anybody have an amazing week? I had a great week. I hope you had a great week because I'm about to ruin it for you. Today's sermon title is called, What Does the Bible Say About Politics? That's right, we're gonna talk about politics and religion. Whenever I was a kid, my, my grandmother, she always told me, she said, now Byron, there's two things that you never talk about in polite company. You never talk about religion or politics. Well, today I get to do both, three services. Please pray for me. <laughs> but we live in the United States of America, now, the question is, would you say that as a nation, we are united? No. Okay, we are actually very divided. It's very polarized when it comes to this subject. A lot of people, very passionate on both sides. So you turn on the TV, you turn on the news, you get on social media, and what do you see? It's just anger and offense and rage and hashtags and people in comment sections criticizing other people. We are a nation that is divided. We are families that are divided. Just think about Thanksgiving coming up after the midterm elections, sitting down with your brother, sister, or your grandparents. It's a family that is also divided, and oftentimes even those in the church are divided. And I thought this would be a great sermon in God's wisdom to kick off small groups this week. And so you get to go to small groups and you get to talk about politics. Amen. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Suck it to you, right? But here's the deal is that this is a very important subject for we to discuss. And the big idea that we're going to cover today is this. When it comes to government or to politics, there's only two ways to live. So here's my question. Will you live culture up or kingdom down? Will you live culture up or kingdom down? What does culture up mean? Culture means that you just do what everybody else does, say what everybody else says, you think the way that everybody else thinks, you retweet the rhetoric, you post the hashtag, you pick up their offense and you riot and you rage and you scream and you cancel everybody who disagrees with you. That's, that's living culture up. Or are you gonna live kingdom down. What does it mean to live kingdom down? It means to be the answer to the Lord's prayer that Jesus prayed. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy what? Kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We all have a choice. Will you live culture up or will you live kingdom down? If you choose to live culture up, what you're literally doing is you're pulling hell into your life, into your home, family, and into this nation. Living culture up is basically just doing what everybody else does, saying what everybody else says. It is being indoctrinated by the world. It is, it is taking up all of the anger and the virtual and the rage. It's living culture up. But living kingdom down is exactly the opposite. It's about finding our identity in Christ, finding our peace within the midst of God's presence. And it's basing our life not on the world, but rather on the word. It's not basing ourselves on the scripture, but rather it, the culture, but it's basing our lives on the scriptures. And so at Redemption Church, how do we want to live? Do we want to live culture up? No. Do we want to live kingdom down? All God's people said, amen. And so we're going to learn how to live kingdom down 
in our study through 1 Peter that we're calling Christians are crazy, learning how to live for Christ in the middle of a world that is in crisis. Peter's gonna teach us three things about living kingdom down when it comes to politics. And the first thing he's gonna say is this, you need a biblical view of the government. We're gonna start off by talking about the government. So everybody turn off your phones because I know they're listening. (laughs) Starting in verse 11, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among Gentiles honorable. We're going to talk about that. So when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject to the Lord's sake to every human institution. That's government, whether it be the emperor as supreme We're going to talk about that. Or to the governor sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing so, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Listen, I didn't call them ignorant or foolish. God did. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the Emperor. Now, some people would say that Christianity is the largest religion in America. I disagree with that statement. Okay, and here's how they come up with it. They just do an annual poll every year, and they call people, and they say, hey, what religion are you? And then they just check the box. And 70-something percent of people, they check the box as Christian. But there was a sociologist a few years back. His name is John Dickerson. And he realized, ah, the numbers just aren't really adding up. Like what I read in the Bible versus what I see in people's lives, I think there's a little bit more to it. And so he asked different questions. He he started asking questions based upon biblical values. How often do you attend church? How often do you pray? How often do you read the Bible? Do you tithe? Do you practice these things within your home and family? And here's what he discovered. He discovered that 17% of Americans actually live by biblical convictions. Okay. You know, it is possible for people to profess something that they don't actually practice. And so there's a, a lot of people in our nation who, because they're you know, born in America or raised in Southeast Texas, or maybe their parents or grandparents went to church or they went to Awanas one time, they would automatically just say, oh yeah, sure. I prayed the sinner's prayer. Of course, I'm a Christian. But many people are professing a faith that they don't actually practice. And so The question is, if Christianity is not the largest religion in America, then what is? Here's what I believe. I believe politics is the largest religion in America. Okay, what is the definition of a religion? It's a system of values that a person adheres to to give them comfort and hope. If that doesn't sound like every four years here in America, I don't really know what is, right? Because politics, for many people, has become their religion even in the church. Why? Because some people are more devoted to their cause than they're devoted to Christ. Some are more committed to politics than they are committed to prayer. Some are more committed to their party than they are to God's presence. Some are more committed to Fox News than they are to reading the good news. Some people are more committed to knowing about their political enemy than they actually know about their spiritual enemy. And the two largest denominations in America are not the Catholics and the Baptists, but the Republicans and the Democrats. And they get along about as good between each other, amen? But politics is a counterfeit religion for many people in America. I'll go ahead and show you. The Constitution 
that is our 10 commandments. The Bill of Rights, that is our Bible. The 4th of July, that is our Easter, right? The tax is now our tithe, right? The Pledge of Allegiance is our sinner's prayer. The president is our pastor. And every four years, we accept a new leader into our heart to rescue us from the evil one. Okay, American politics is set up no different than a religion. This is the reason that people get so passionate about their beliefs and they defend them so violently when anyone criticizes or disagrees with them. Because to them, you are not disagreeing with their ideas, you are disagreeing with their God. And when your politics becomes your identity, you are guilty of idolatry. And people in the church, they get really nervous when the pastor starts talking about this. And here's the reason why. Because you don't like it when your idols are exposed. But my job as a pastor is not to tiptoe around your idols. My job as a pastor is to walk right up to them and kick them in the face. And so for many of us, we have begun to identify ourselves with, with politics. We know more about government than we know about God. We find our identity in our government and not our identity in God. We find our identity in politics and not going to prayer to see who God says that we actually are. And so for, for this, it's important because people are going to say, what? I'm a Republican or I'm a Democrat or I'm a Libertarian. No, you're not. You're confused. That's what you are. <laughs> you're like, well, some days I'm a Democrat. Some days I'm a Republican. You're confused. But what Peter wants us to know is this, is that our identity is not found in our political parties. Our identity is found in Christ. Okay, first and foremost, you're a Christian. You're a Christian. You're not a Republican. You're not a Democrat. You are a Christian. And so for us as Christians, we need to recognize that above the authority of the government, there is a greater authority, and his name is Jesus. And if we forget that, what's going to happen? We're going to live culture up rather than learning how to live kingdom down. And, and so here's what he wants us to hold on to, that we live... As exiles, here's what he says. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. What does he mean by that word exile? It means that you don't belong here. You're a stranger. You're an alien. This world is not your home. God did not call you to fit in. God called you to stand out. You are holy. You are unique. You are set apart. And some people may say that's crazy, but you're going to say, no, that's biblical. We're exiles in this world. And here's, here's what we need to recognize is that we may live in America, but our citizenship is in heaven. That I live in America, but my citizenship is in heaven. Right now I am here, but I'm also not yet home. And so for me, here's, here's what it, I, I love being an American. I believe that we live in the, the greatest nation in the world. That's why people are leaving their nations and moving here. We live in the greatest nation. I am so grateful to be an American. I am thankful for the military that keeps my family safe. I'm thankful for first responders. I'm thankful for capitalism. I'm thankful for our government. I'm thankful for this nation and for the rights that I have to be able to preach the gospel, practice my religion openly, gather together as a church with the freedom of assembly. I love the free speech. I love all of it. I'm so grateful to be American. But the truth is, is while I'm thankful to be an American, I am grateful that I am a Christian first. And so I, I will gladly stand 
And I will put my hand on my heart. I'll sing the national anthem. I'll say the Pledge of Allegiance, but my loyalty lies with Jesus. Joe Biden might be my president, but Jesus is my king. And I choose to live, not culture up, but rather I choose to live kingdom down. And right now, all of the Republicans in the room and all my conservative friends, you're like, yeehaw, preach it, pastor. My holy trinity, God, guns, and gold, let's go. Okay, now slow down before you storm the Capitol. Let me keep reading. Here's what he says next. He says, be subject. What's that word? To submit for the Lord's sake to every institution. Talking about government there. There's three institutions that God has placed over society. The home, the church, and the government. And when you rebel against that authority, you set yourself up for destruction. He says, whether it be the emperor as supreme, today we would say the president, or to governors or senators that are sent by him. What does he say? Dear Christian, what does he say? Submit to your government. Be subject to the emperor as supreme and respect the governing authorities that are above you. Honor who? Honor the government. Why do we need to do that? Like, Our entire nation was founded on a revolution. We don't like honoring government. We like rebelling against governments. Can can I just form a militia yet? Anybody? No, it says what? Honor and submit to your governing authorities. But why? For the Lord's sake. Because in doing so, you're doing the will of God. Now, some people say that the Trinity is the hardest doctrine for Christians to understand. One God, three persons, Father, Son, Spirit. But as I was prepping this week, what I realized is for Americans, the hardest doctrine for us to understand is submission to the government. And this isn't just some random verse that's tucked away in 1 Peter chapter 2. It's actually found all throughout the Bible. So we see that Joseph submitted under Pharaoh even whenever he was in prison. And God raised him up to be the second in charge. We see that Esther submitted under the Persian Empire. She rebelled against Haman, but yet she got an audience with the king. And she saved her people. We know that Nehemiah, he submitted under the king. And he earned an audience with the king to where he could go back and he could build Jerusalem. He didn't try to go around the king to get it done. He had the favor of the king to be able to accomplish that. We see that even Jesus submitted to Pontius Pilate. We see that Peter, in Acts chapter 4, he submitted under Rome. And here in 1 Peter, he's telling them to submit under Nero. Nero is the most wicked, godless king an emperor that ever lived in the Roman Empire. He literally set Rome on fire, blamed the Christians, rounded them all up, put them in a coliseum, and had them be eaten by wild dogs and animals. He would take Christians, and he would impale them. He would wrap them in pitch and tar, set them on fire so we could have dinner parties. And what do we see here, Nero? Peter saying, submit. Submit under the emperor. 
You say, but, but why would I have to do that? Here's the reason why. Because God works through authority, but Satan works through anarchy. God, he works through authority. Satan, he works through anarchy. Like God is a God of order. Satan, he loves to bring disorder. God, he loves unity. Satan loves division and disunity. God loves peace. Satan loves panic. God loves authority. And Satan, he works through anarchy. And so what we're seeing in our society today is a rejection of God's authority. And that's the reason why there's anarchy all around us. Because God works through this authority. And so as believers, we are to submit under the governing officials that are above us. Imagine if you grew up in a home that had no rules. Right? As a, as a kid, you just got to do whatever you want to do, stay up late, eat whatever you want. Does that promote flourishing for a child? No. Okay. Some parents think it does, and that's why we have the society we live in, because many of us were raised told that we were snowflakes and perfect and nothing ever needed to change. We were never held accountable, and we never learned to submit to authority. Imagine if you went to work and there was no HR policies, handbooks. Would that be a safe work environment? Would that be a healthy work environment? No, that would be a hostile work environment. And so imagine what this nation would look like if we didn't have government. It would be worse than what it already is, right? I mean, even bad government is better than no government. And so we need to learn how to respect and to submit and to honor the government that is before us. Why? Because God gave it to us. And so because many of us, we have a political view of government, we do not have a biblical view of government, I need to reteach this. So that way we can get our perception of reality, not culture up, but rather from kingdom down. And so let me give you five reasons that God institutes government. The first reason is this, is that the government's authority is derived by God. First Peter 2 talks about this, but Romans 13 is actually the most in-depth teaching in the Bible around government. Here's what it says as it starts. Romans 13 says, there is no authority except that which is from God. And so all authority derives that privilege from God himself. God created it, he instituted it. And so then it's up to us to be able to execute that authority, but it's all derived by God. Here's what Jesus says when he stands before Pontius Pilate. He says, you have no authority except that which God has given to you. My father has given to you. And so even government is derived from God. Number two, it is a divine authority. Here's what it says next in 13.2. Whoever resists authority resists what God has appointed. And so for us to rebel against government ultimately is for us to rebel against God. For us to resist the government is to resist God. For us to dishonor the government is for us to dishonor God. And then it goes on, and he says this in verse 14 of 1 Peter. He says, the government exists to punish evil. Could you imagine what our society would look like if there were no laws? You don't have to imagine. Just look to the cities that defunded the police. Just look at the major leftist cities like New York or San Francisco or Chicago and see the crime rates that are going up because what law does is it restrains evil. Okay? There are some people who push past the evil, but for most people, it restrains the evil that is inside of them. And so the reason God gives government is to hold back the depravity of the human heart and it restrains evil, but it also celebrates the good. It praises good. Look at verse 14. This is why we have prosecution for criminals and we also have celebration for heroes because what law does is it creates a safe environment. It creates good citizens 
And it creates a world of flourishing. And so God gave government to be able to punish evil and to bring peace and to protect its citizens. And then lastly, God gave government as a tool to sanctify believers. If God uses the family to sanctify us, and if God uses the church to sanctify us, then it also makes sense that God would use the government to sanctify us. But for Christians in America, we like one and two, but we don't like number three. But government actually sanctifies us as Christians because we have to learn how to live kingdom down in a world that is living culture up. And so it creates perseverance. It creates attitude and it creates hope. It creates endurance within all of us. And so as believers, we have to recognize that God has given government for our protection and for our good. Now, this is really easy to preach whenever it's your guy in office. Right? What happens when your guy loses? What happens when you didn't vote for the man who's in office? Nobody got to vote for Nero. He doesn't say, he doesn't say, honor the emperor supreme as long as you agree with him. He doesn't say, honor the emperor as supreme as long as you voted for him. But if you don't, you don't have to do it. Rules don't apply to you. It's not what he says. But what if I don't like him? He doesn't say you have to like him. He just says you got to honor him. This is a military term that is used for submission. It's the same idea that soldiers in the military would do whenever they salute their, their general. They, if they can't salute the person, they still salute the uniform. And so as Christians, if you cannot respect the person who is an authority over you, you still need to respect that authority. And here's the reason why, because honoring people is honoring to God. As you honor people, God in return would honor you. But when you dishonor people, then you are actually bringing dishonor upon God and you are ruining the Christian witness of the brothers and sisters that are around us. What is the honor that God will give? He says this. He says, for whenever evildoers come and speak slander against you, their accusations would not stick. And you will receive a testimony, the ability to witness. People will listen to you. I mean, why would someone come listen to you after reading your Facebook posts? If someone's hurting, are they going to come to you when they see that you're filled with so much hatred? When someone's divorced and their marriage is falling apart, are they going to come see you because of how compassionate you are? No, you're sending a negative witness out. My concern for us is this, is that come this midterm election, Christians are going to be so focused on winning the elections, you're going to forget that you're supposed to be winning souls. And you're so worried about losing an election, you're not worried about losing your reputation. Listen, People don't read the Bible. Non-believers don't read the Bible. They read you. And they're watching you and seeing how you respond. And I'm just going to lean over the plate and I'm going to say this. Majority of public opinion coming from the evangelical right, do you think they are honoring the emperor as supreme? No. Criticizing, making fun of him, degrading him. Listen, in our church, the only time anyone should ever say, let's go, Brandon, is whenever Brandon Stacy's preaching. It's the only time other than that. Let's go, Brandon. Let's go. 
Because we are to be honoring of the authority that God has placed above us. We're supposed to honor everyone. We're supposed to love the brotherhood. Fear God and honor the emperor. This is not a political view of government. This is a biblical view of government. So now that all of my Republicans are offended at me, let's talk to the Democrats. Number two, a biblical view of morality. I'm an equal opportunity offender today. All right, I'm going to get everybody. So buckle up, buttercup. Here we go. <laughs> Servants, we're going to talk about that. Be subject to your masters with all respect. Not only do good and gentle, but also for those who are unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one who endures sufferings while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if you do good and suffer for it and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. This is the first word right here. It's this word servant. Some of your translations are going to say bond servants and others are going to say slaves. And immediately some people are triggered because they're going to say, well, there you have it. The Bible supports slavery. Slow down. In the Roman time, upwards of 50% of citizens were actually slaves. So Rome would invade a country. They would move their governors and their politicians there. Men and women and children would become slaves and they didn't have any rights. And so what Peter is actually writing here is that the overwhelming majority of his church would have actually been slaves. So this is not condoning slavery But what it actually is doing, it is setting a time bomb in the Roman citizenship to where the ethics of the Bible will actually lead to the downfall of Rome. You say, how is that possible? Because the way Christians lived versus the culture flipped the world upside down on its head. Because in the Bible, here's what it says. There's neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free nor male nor female. See, according to the Bible, slaves are free And those who think they're free actually are slaves to sin. And it was the early church that began to to distribute the sacraments to everybody, slaves and to women. And so they're baptizing slaves. They're giving communion to slaves. They're incorporating slaves into their public gathering when no one else would do that. And they were allowing women to come into the services and to prophesy according to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And so women had no other opportunity to do that. In fact, Christianity has been the most progressive whenever it comes to the liberation of people of color into women. I know that doesn't sound popular in vogue to say today, but if you look through all of human history, it was Christians who abolished slavery. First in Rome, William Wilberforce, as he abolished slavery in Europe. It was Harriet Beecher Stowe who wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin after having a vision from God, wrote the book to be able to show the horrors of slavery. Another Christian man named Abraham Lincoln read that book when he met Harriet Beecher Stowe. He said, so you're the little woman who has turned this country upside down. And he ran on an abolitionist platform, gave his life for the ending of slavery as well. It was Jackie Robinson who broke the color barrier as a Bible-believing Christian, his manager as a Christian that wanted him to break that barrier. And it was the pastors of the civil rights movement led by Martin Luther King, who was enabled for equal rights under the law because of that. Christians are the ones who had led that, spearheaded that movement. Christians are the ones that have welcomed and incorporated women into public gatherings as well. Because there's either Jew nor slave, male nor free, nor, nor Greek, nor Jew, or 
men and women, all one in Jesus Christ. And so the Bible is not actually condoning slavery. It is actually teaching believers how to live kingdom down instead of living culture up. But don't believe me. It's okay. I got a verse. Here's what this verse says. 1 Timothy 1.9. Understanding this, that the law, okay, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and for the disobedient, for ungodly sinners, unholy profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, murderers, sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, what's the word? Enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Here's a big long list of things that the Bible says, these are immoral, these are wrong. And what do we find right there in the middle? Enslavers. Now, people will say, I agree with that one. Can we all agree racism is evil? Can we all agree that slavery is evil? Okay, we like that one, but what about the rest in the list? What about the rest of the list? See, many people want to pick and choose what they view as moral as long as they agree with it. But when something disagrees with it, all of a sudden, nope, that's, that is a, I can't take it. Oh, bigotry, ah, tolerance, ah, let me invent a word to be able to make you feel bad. See, we cannot just pick and choose what we decide is moral. Where does our society derive its morals from? I don't know. They just make it up along the way. Because at one time, slavery was moral. Today, we'd say it's immoral. At one time, we'd say oppression of women was moral. Now we'd say that's not moral. Well, what, what changed? See, if you come from a secular, atheistic background... You have no right to talk about morality. Why is that? Because you're just making up as you go along. Wait until somebody else gets in a position of authority and then it begins to change. You have no basis to talk about morality. For non-Christians, their morals are made up by culture. But for Christians, our morals are made up through scripture. And culture changes, but scripture never changes. And for those of you who come from an atheistic background... You have no right to talk about this because according to evolution, it's might makes right, survival of the fittest, only the strong survive and the weak will die off. And so for you talking about justice, for you talking about morality, you're a hypocrite because you're appealing to a law that you don't actually believe in. You're appealing to a lawgiver without actually believing in that lawgiver. You have no basis on which you can establish what morality is. But for us as Christians, our morality is defined by the scriptures. So let's just take a moment because I got nothing better to do. It's been three services. So let's just look at this long list. Do we agree that, let's say, striking your father and mother is immoral? We would say that. TikTok says otherwise. The amount of disrespect that, parent, that children are giving to their parents is, is completely wrong, but societally acceptable. I mean, what about this one? Uh, murders. Is murder wrong? What about abortion? If, if murder is the taking of the innocent life, then there is no life that is more innocent than a preborn child. You say, but what about choice? Whose choice? Yours or that child's? See, the only reason why you got a choice is because you got out of the womb. We read on and we say, sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, LGBTQ plus issues, gay marriage, transgenderism, bisexuality, 
unisex bathrooms, pronouns, I would say immoral, perjurers, liars, we all agree on that. And whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Here's my question for you. Those who want to live culture up. I know why I believe racism is wrong. Why do you? Do you have any, anything, to, anything to back that claim up? No, it's just whatever culture says. I know why I believe that there is equality between men and women because God made us both in the image and likeness of God. Okay, what's your reason? I know why I believe that abortion is murder. Why do you believe that it's not? I know why I believe that sexual immorality is immoral, but what makes you think that it's okay? Because you've basically just become a law unto yourself. If you don't believe in God and his rules, you will surrender to the mob rules. And eventually culture will change and your opinions and your ideas will look silly in a hundred years. But the Bible says the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord is forever. Culture changed, scripture does not. And as believers, you cannot edit scripture to fit culture. You cannot do enough hermeneutical gymnastics to be able to make the Bible say what you think or what you want it to say. And for many of us as Christians, what, what we're feeling right now in the room is you're saying, but pastor, you're getting dangerously close. I think you should just keep your opinions to yourself. How dare you get your religion in my politics? Let me say something. If you have a right to speak what your unbelief says, I have a right to speak what my belief says. That's what makes this country so great is that if you wanna live culture up, fine. I choose to live kingdom down. And come November, we'll see who wins. But many of us, we have been brainwashed into thinking that we have to check our beliefs at the door of the ballot box and we have to vote against our convictions and violate our conscience. See, people are trying to say, be quiet, sit down, don't post anything, don't say anything, get your religion out of my politics. You know what they're doing? They're suppressing, they're suppressing your freedoms. Because you have a freedom of the First Amendment, which is the freedom of practicing religion, the freedom of speech, the freedom of assembly, and the 14th Amendment, which says we will not hold anyone's vote back based upon race, color, creed, or their own nationality or gender. And so when people are telling you, you cannot get religion and politics, what they're actually doing is they're suppressing your vote and by your voice. If they get to practice their freedom of speech, we get to practice ours. If they get to practice their unbelief, then we get to practice our belief. And, and for us in the church, we have been tricked into thinking that these are just political issues. Oh, I'm just going to mind my business because these are just political issues. These are just political issues. No, these are not political issues. These are biblical issues that have political applications. Like there are no political issues. There are only biblical issues that have political applications. So abortion is not a political issue. It's a biblical issue. For I knew you in your mother's womb and set you apart to be a prophet to the nations. John the Baptist leapt in Elizabeth's stomach whenever Jesus walked into the room. What is that? Life happens at conception. This is not a political issue. It is a biblical issue. Transgenderism, homosexuality, Jesus himself teaches. Not some obscure verse in Leviticus. He teaches us. 
He says that marriage between one man and one woman. He affirms biological sex and marriage, one man, one woman, do not set apart what God has put together. Jesus teaches these things. These are not political issues. Do not buy into the hashtags. Do not buy into the rhetoric. Do not buy into the lies of culture that seek to silence you. No, stand up, speak out for what you believe is right and true. There are no political issues. It's, a, it's an attack and an attempt of the enemy to be able to make you cower and to be fearful and to live out of the fear of man rather than living in the fear of God. Culture will change, but scripture will never change. Doesn't matter if people believe it's right or wrong. Scripture itself will never change. And here's Peter's encouragement to you. Are people gonna make fun of you for this? Yeah. Is this a hard pill to swallow? Yes. Are people gonna oppose you, unfriend you on Facebook? Are people gonna think you're crazy? Yes. And that's okay because you're not living for their approval anyway. Because at the end of the day, you're not gonna stand before other people on judgment day. You're gonna stand before God and give an account for your life. And God ultimately is our judge. And we long to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Here's what he says. But if when you do good and you suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. When you stand up for what is right, God is proud of you. You will never go wrong doing right by God. When you stand up for truth, God is pleased with you. And when you speak the truth, God is is close to you. What good is it to suffer when you do evil? It's of no use. But when you suffer for doing good, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And so now that the Democrats and the Republicans are all united in their hatred of me, (laughs) we'll lead to number three, a biblical view of persecution. Here's what we see. For this to you, you've been called. For Christ, you suffered because Christ also suffered, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he reviled, he did not revile in turn. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in the body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed for you were straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and to the overseer of your souls. Five times in this verse, Peter is talking about suffering. Now, because we live in a society that growing up, we were all taught that self-esteem is the greatest virtue. Typically, when we think about suffering, we internalize it and we think about it as an individual. What happened to me? But there's another type of suffering the Bible talks about, and it's a collective suffering. Namely, it is religious persecution. He's talking about when you are being persecuted by a wicked government, how do you live? Now, in America, are we experiencing religious persecution? No. At least not like they did. But I would be a bad pastor and I would be foolish to tell you that the seeds of persecution have not been planted amongst our nation. Because what we see is that in Missouri recently, there was a a Christian college that due to Biden's administration and their Fair Housing Act actually lost a lawsuit to integrate boys into the girls' dorms. Christian college on the the brink of losing their tax-exempt status. Pastors during COVID, churches being shut down by the government, forced vaccines that violate people's consciences. We have pastors in 
UK who are being arrested for preaching against homosexuality. A man who is in Toronto was arrested and thrown into jail and awaiting his trial because he refused to allow his 12-year-old daughter to transition into being a boy. There's a photographer in New Mexico who sued and had to pay a very large exorbitant fee because she politely declined of doing a lesbian wedding. Like we're as a church already trying to figure out how we can rewrite our constitution and bylaws to set us up for the greatest amount of civil liberties and protection because we don't know what the future holds. And I would be foolish to say that it's happening now and create a persecution complex where everybody's freaking out all the time. But I'd also be foolish to say that what is the nation that my daughters are gonna grow up and look like? I'll be the pastor here for 30 more years. Maybe our next pastor is back there in kids' church right now. What kind of church will he lead in 30 years? What kind of church will we leave to him in 30 years? And so as believers, we cannot just stick our heads in the ground, sing kumbaya, and wait until the Lord returns. We need to figure out how we are going to suffer and how we are going to suffer well. And make a choice today because if you wait for that day, you may not have the strength and resolve to be able to stand firm. Right. So here's what Peter is wanting them to know. When you are suffering, he says, never forget two things. God is sovereign and God is good. God is sovereign. What does that mean? That he is king. Abraham Kuyper says, there is not one square inch of this universe that God does not declare my own. He is king. He is sovereign over all but he is not the source or the cause of the suffering that we experience. It's at the hands of wicked men that people suffer. And even though he is sovereign, you also need to hold to the fact that God is always good. And in the midst of that suffering, God's grace is with us. God's presence is with us. He is near us. He never leaves us. He never abandons us. He gives us the strength. He gives us his mercy. He gives us the power that comes through the Holy Spirit. I love hearing testimonies of, of people who are in the persecuted churches in like Iran or in China. And whenever they get out and, and they come to the States or they go preach at a church and people ask them, what was it like to be in prison facing certain death, to be starved? And you know what they say? They say, I have never experienced God's goodness more than I did in a jail cell. Because there is, there is the presence of God that strengthens your resolve in that moment. But it comes from whenever you trust in him, that knowing he is sovereign and he is good. See, God could have chosen for you to live anywhere, anytime. Acts tells us that he determines the times and seasons in which we live. He could have chosen for you to be born anytime, anyplace in all of human history. But instead, out of his goodness and sovereignty, he chose for you to live today in downtown Beaumont 2022 to be a part of Redemption Church because he knows that you have a plan and you have a purpose and you have been called for such a time as this. He is sovereign and he is good. Do not fear. Do not back down. Do not count. Power. Do not live culture up, but instead live kingdom down. So let me give you five ways to endure in the middle of times like this. Number one, be mindful of God. See, where is God in all of this? Sometimes it gets dark and it's hard to see, but you have to be mindful of God. Read your Bible, pray, join a small group, become a member of the local church, get on a serve team, fill your mind with the things that are of the Lord. Focus on God. Number two, find favor with God. That word favor is grace. Yeah. It's grace. His grace is sufficient for you in your time of weakness. His grace is available for you when you need it the most. 
And the more grace you need, the more grace he gives. So find grace in God. Number three, listen for the call of God. Listen, I think sometimes as Christians, we forget that Jesus is still on the throne and he's still saving lives. Right? He's still choosing people, still electing people, still calling people. He's still saving people. He's still changing lives. He's still on the throne. If you're not dead, God's not done. Listen to the call of God that is on your life. There is still room. I believe that there is an end time revival that is coming where people are going to stop going woke and they're starting to be awakened by the Holy Spirit and they're going to come to know the truth and the truth shall set you free. People are getting sick of all of the hatred, all of the animosity, all of the lies, all of the gaslighting, and they're realizing this doesn't work. And then they come into the church and they hear the message of Jesus. Right now, I believe God is calling someone right now. Come, come and call, calling. I love you. I'm forgiving you. I got the truth. I am the way. I am the life. Come to me right now, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The world has promised you rest, but they've just driven you into the ground. Jesus will give you rest. Take that burden upon his shoulders, and he will lead you, and he will guide you, and he will never forsake you. He will love you. He will save you forevermore. Number four, follow Jesus because he is God. He set a pattern for us in suffering. He set a pattern for us in submitting to government. He set a pattern for us when it comes to morality. And what is that pattern? That pattern is when you are reviled, you do not revile back. Whenever you are hated, you do not return hate with hate. Jesus says, if someone slaps you, you turn and you give them the other cheek. If someone says they are hungry, you give them something to eat. Jesus says that you take off your cloak and you give it to, to them. Blessed are those who are persecuted for my sake, for they will inherit the kingdom of God. As Christians, we do not wage war with the weapons of this world, but rather it is spiritual weapons that we wage war with. People are not our enemies, guys. People are not our enemies. It is the demonic strongholds and lies that they have believed in that we wage war against. People are not our enemies. They are just captives that Jesus has called us to go and help be set free and deliver them. So follow Jesus because he's God. Number five, trust in God. Everything else will fail, but Jesus will continue to reign. In a thousand years, no one's gonna care what you tweeted. No one's gonna care what you posted on Facebook. No one's gonna care about your Instagram stories or the hashtags or the parades that you marched in. In a thousand years, no one's gonna care who the president was or who his cabinet was or what was on the election cycle for this year. In a thousand years, kings and kings will come and go, but Jesus Christ will remain. In a thousand years, philosophies and ideologies will come and go, but Jesus Christ will still be the king. That in a thousand years, everything that we loved and known will be dead and forgotten, but there will still be Christians gathered on this planet, every tribe, tongue, and nation who are worshiping Jesus Christ as our resurrected, living Christ, Savior, God, and he is our king. Stop living culture up. Live kingdom down. Put your trust in him, my friends. Put your trust in him. Culture changes. God does not. Society changes. God does not. Are you tired of just living on shaky ground all the time? Place your feet on the solid rock, the firm foundation. 
the only one who will never change. And he closes with this, for you are like straying sheep, but now you have returned to the overseer of your souls. Some of you in this room, you're like straying sheep. You know the truth, but you've wandered away from it. And here's what God is saying. He's saying, just come home. Just come home. Some of y'all have gotten dangerously close to wandering away. And he's just saying, come home. Just come home right now. Some of you, you're not Christians today, but he's given you that invitation like a sheep who has gone astray to come home, to stop living culture up and for the approval of others. He will give you his approval and you can begin to live kingdom down. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, if you would like to make a decision to follow Jesus today, to stop living culture up and to start living kingdom down, just slip your hand up. One, Jesus loves you. Two, Jesus died for you. Three, he will forgive you. Lift your hands up right now. Praise the Lord. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, let's give it up for the hands raised. Thank you so much. If you guys as a church would stand with me. I wanna say a prayer. Just repeat with me. Heavenly Father, forgive me of my sins. Like a sheep, I have gone astray, but now I return to the overseer and the shepherd of my soul. I trust in you. And it's in your name I pray. Amen. Hey, let's give it up for those who made a decision today to follow Jesus. I'm gonna invite our prayer team up as we close. Here's the last thing that I wanna say. If you choose to live kingdom down in a culture that tells you how to live, both on the left and the right, what they're gonna say is you must choose, you must decide, pick a team, pick a side. But here's what you say in return. You say, I've already decided that I'm gonna follow Jesus. So church, don't, don't look to the left and don't look to the right. Just keep looking to Jesus because he is the shepherd and the overseer of your soul and he will never lead you astray. Don't look to the left, don't to the light. Just keep looking to Jesus. As a church, let's say this together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.